I get the privilege of preaching through Exodus 27 today. So it's, a, it's still in the vein of the tabernacle. This chapter, this chapter, Exodus 27, covers the details of the bronze altar, the tabernacle court itself, which we'll talk about what that means. It's the, it's the curtain boundary that separates out the tabernacle, that surrounds the tabernacle, and the oil for the lamp that would burn in the tabernacle. And so before we read this chapter together and we start talking about it, unpacking it, I wanted to say this. Um, after the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus was walking on the road to Emmaus with two men who were, these men were supernaturally kept from recognizing him. And so he's, he's going and he pretends like he doesn't know what's going on and he says, what's going on? And he asks what they're talking about and they tell him and eventually God grants that their eyes are opened that they see Jesus for who he is and it says in Luke 13 27 beginning with Moses and all the prophets Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself the things concerning himself and so today I want us to pray that God would grant to us that we would recognize him speaking to us and that he would show us like he did to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, the things in the scriptures concerning himself. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would open our eyes today to see Christ in your holy scriptures, that they would mold us and shape us so that our lives would bring you supreme glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. When we also, before we read this, I want to say one other thing. When we think about the tabernacle, it's this is God's house. When he's building his house, he's building his house. Well, not to steal anybody's thunder when we get to the later chapters of Exodus, but the point later on becomes evident in the scriptures. And that point is we are God's house. So if we want to see what the tabernacle is pointing us to, we can look around right now, this room. And one thing you'll notice is that on every single row where there's an adult, we have some little ones. <laughs> a lot of kids today. It's like mortar between the bricks. And so we need to think about it like this. God is building his house. Okay. He's building us up. Some of us are a little better at sitting still longer. Some adults still have a problem with that. And it's all right. Um, we're going to, we're going to work together today to go through Exodus 27 to talk about God's house. And, but I want us to keep in our minds this reality. God is building his house right here in this room, okay? Make it messy. You cut a board, there's some, there's some dust. It's a little bit loud, so it's all right. We're going to work together. Exodus 27, let's go there together. Exodus 27, the bronze altar. This first part here. This is the word of the Lord. You shall make the altar of acacia wood five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes and shovels and basins and forks and fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating a network of bronze, and on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar, and you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the rings so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards, as it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. Verse 9, you shall make the court of the tabernacle on the south side of the court shall have hangings of fine twined linen, a hundred cubits long for one side. Its 20 pillars and their 20 bases shall be of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And likewise, for its length on the north side, there shall be hangings a hundred cubits long, its pillar Pillars 20 and their bases 20 of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. For the breadth of the court on the west side, there shall be hangings for 50 cubits with 10 pillars and 10 bases. The breadth of the court on the front to the east shall be 
50 cubits. The hangings for the one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three bases. On the other side of the hangings shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three bases. For the gate of the court shall, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars with them, four bases. All the pillars around the court shall be filleted with silver. Their hooks shall be of silver, their bases of bronze. The length of the court shall be a hundred cubits and the breadth 50 and the height five cubits with hangings of fine twined linen and bases of bronze. All the utensils of the tabernacle for every use and all its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. Verse 20, you shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn in the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony. Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statue forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. All right. I want you to get this picture in your head. That may sound confusing, and it probably does sound confusing when you're just listening to it being read through, but get this picture in your head. This is a, um, you have the tabernacle itself, which is a rectangle tent building. It's got solid wood walls, actually, but it's a, it's a rectangle tent. And um, that's the tent you heard about last week. And that housed the Holy of Holies and the most holy place. So it's a rectangle that's basically cut right in half. And so you have the Holy of Holies on one half and the, uh, uh, the most holy or the holy place on the other. Um, and in the, you have the stuff in there, the table of bread, the lamp, the altar of incense. Surrounding the tabernacle is this curtain fence. Think of a chain link fence with the curtain on it. Okay, it's not chain link, but it's the idea here is it's about seven and a half foot tall, give or take. We don't really know exactly what a cubit is, but we assume it's something like 18 inches. And so it's probably about seven and a half foot tall. And this curtain surrounds the entire tabernacle uh, building itself, but then it creates this courtyard. All right. So that's what you heard. A uh, hundred cubits on the one side, a hundred cubits on the other, and then 50 wide. All right. It's a rectangle. The pillars, it's got these pillars holding the uh, hangings up, and these pillars are about seven and a half feet apart. So interestingly enough, they make these uh, squares. I don't know if that you could notice that or not, but that's what it made. Um, so once the Israelite worshipers passed beyond the blue and the purple and the scarlet screen that was called the gate of the court, which we're going to talk about that in a little bit later, but the, to get into the tabernacle, there was a gate and it was on the one side, it was 20 cubits and it's blue, purple, scarlet um, yarn. And this was the screen or the gate of the court. When the Israelite worshiper would go through that gate, they would encounter, they would see the brazen altar, the bronze altar. And this, this was the first place that could be approached because it was right. Uh, the first thing beyond the screen, beyond the gate, the first thing but for the regular Israelite worshiper, it was the only thing that they could go to. They could go no further than the, than the bronze altar. So this was the first and the only place they could go in the tabernacle. Um, this bronze altar was a place of bloodshed. It was a place of death. It was a place of judgment. And so that is exactly, and we know this from the other scriptures, this is exactly what is required to approach God. Death, bloodshed, judgment. So God is holy and therefore we must approach him in a worthy manner. And so are you worthy to approach God by yourself? No, you are not. So because we are sinners and God is holy, if we want to approach God, there must be forgiveness. But where do we get forgiveness? How do we get forgiveness? We get forgiveness by blood. We talked a little bit about this on Wednesday. We get forgiveness by blood. Let's talk about that. Let's uh, look at Leviticus 17, verse 11. Leviticus 17, 11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. 
It is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Indeed, under the, uh, sorry, Hebrews 9.22 says this. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Lays it out there crystal clear. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. When you come into the tabernacle and you get to the bronze altar, this is exactly the point. There's ha- there has to be blood. You want to get close to God. If you want to approach God, there's got to be blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so Exodus chapter 40 verse 6 tells us that the, the bronze altar is before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And this means that if you want to come near to God, you're going to have to get blood on you. If you want to come near to God, you've got to go to the fire. It's blood and there's fire. In other words, you have to come to the altar. In fact, this is why you, in a, in a lot of the older style churches, you know, in church services, you have the altar call. This is the idea. You have to get to God. You got to come to the altar. You've got to come to an altar because this is the way God sets it up. And so it's important to point out because altars in the Bible are how God's people get close to God. This is just the way God made it. This, the altars are how God's people ascend up to be with him. In the tabernacle, the Israelite worshiper could go no further than the altar. The sacrifice is burned on the altar and what goes up in the smoke is representative of the worshiper going up himself, the worshiper himself going up in the smoke as a sweet smelling aroma through the bloodied mediator. If you thought that sounded like a barbecue pit, that's because it is. If you thought that sounded kind of funny, all this talk about the fire and the ashes and the grates and the forks and the shovels and the pans and all this stuff, that's what, this is the sweet smelling aroma. This is why Texas is, you know, this is totally off the subject of what we're talking about, but this is why Texas is, you know, the most beautiful garden of Eden that we have presently on the earth because Texas is the home of the best barbecue and barbecue is what God likes to smell. <laughs> it's kind of funny, but it's kind of serious too, because in the, at the altar, this is what it, the idea was. He says, your sin is a stench. Give me something good to smell. And so the sinner would go and the, they would kill the animal. And the animal would go up on the altar and the animal would be burned up. And God says, ah, barbecue. He probably wouldn't quite say barbecue, but um, James Jordan, he's a theologian. He does a really good job developing the idea that altars and trees are symbolic mountains and they're symbolic ladders to heaven. We don't have a lot of time to go into that, but this idea here is that the altar in the tabernacle is the mountain, is where the Israelites, they go, to, they go to the top of the mountain to meet with God, just like Moses went to the top of Mount Sinai. And so the altar in the tabernacle is the Israelite worshiper's way to heaven. The, the brazen altar, this bronze altar, is the symbolic mountain, and it's the closest that the common worshiper would be getting to God without themselves actually being consumed, without themselves actually being consumed. This is as close as they could get. Now, We've talked about this before, but I want to reiterate this. This does not mean, what this does not mean is that under the old covenant, under the sacrificial system where the sinner would bring an animal to God and give it to God and then the sinner would leave and be okay. Um, What this does not mean is that God was someone who the Israelite could just pay off. God could not just be paid off by the Israelite presenting an animal to him. God could not be just simply paid off by these Israelites going through the motions. It didn't work that way. And I want to read a few scriptures to you. Psalm 51, 15 and set through 17 says this. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Do not, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. 1 Samuel 15, 22 and 23 says this. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? 
To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination or witchcraft, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. In other words, you bring your sacrifice arrogantly or um, rebelliously, you're not sacrificing to God. That's not what God wants at all. One more scripture, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 6. I love this scripture. Pay attention here. Kids, pay attention to this. This is a good one for you to listen to. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. He goes on in that passage. I'm not going to cite it, but he goes on and he says, teach it to your kids every second of every day. Teach that to your kids. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. He wants us to worship with all our heart. No, I'm not quoting from the New Testament here. This is Deuteronomy. So a heart set toward God has always from the beginning been expected and required. Do you hear me? A heart that is set toward God has always from the very beginning be what has been what God has expected and required. We see this in the account of Cain and Abel. Cain's sacrifice was rejected by God. Now listen here, pay attention to what I'm saying because this is, this is important. Cain's sacrifice was rejected by God, not simply because God wanted meat and not produce. So if you remember the story of Cain and Abel, Cain and Abel are the children of two brothers of Adam and Eve. Abel brings the blood. Abel brings a lamb. Cain brings a fruit basket. And God says, I'll pass I want barbecue. God says, his sacrifice is what I want. Your sacrifice is unacceptable. Get it out of my sight. Cain's sacrifice was rejected. Now, when it tells us why his sacrifice was rejected later on in Hebrews, it does not say Cain had a really bad attitude, so God did not like what he brought. It doesn't say that. He says God rejected his sacrifice sacrifice. God didn't want Cain's fruit or vegetables. He wanted blood. God wanted blood. He wanted meat. He rejected Cain's sacrifice because God required blood. Why does God require blood? Why does he want blood? Because God wants your blood. He wants your life. He requires blood because he wants to see you get up on that altar and die. That sounds morbid, but I'll get to the good news in a little bit. God wants our whole life, so he expects blood. He wants blood. God wants our whole heart. He wants flesh and blood and all. Remember what Jesus said, quoting Deuteronomy 6? You've got to worship God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. What is he talking about? He wants every part of you. He wants your blood. He wants your blood pumper your heart. He wants your brain. God wants all of you. And so he says, I don't want a fruit basket. I need, I require, I want blood. Our whole hearts is what God wants. And so Abel's faith-filled sacrifice witnessed the fact that he was by faith righteous, is what Hebrews 11.4 says. So Cain, Cain who brought the fruit basket, clearly was not offering himself. And besides the fact that he wasn't offering himself by faith, he was not giving himself what God wanted. And we, we know that, we see that by what Cain did next. And so my question is for the kids now. Kids, how, who knows what Cain did next? What did Cain do to Abel? Do any of the kids know? What did Cain do? That's exactly right. Cain killed Abel. He murdered his brother. Cain was not willing. Listen, Cain was not willing to shed the blood of an animal as God required. But was all too willing. Cain was not willing to shed the blood of an animal, but he was so quick and so willing to shed the blood of his righteous brother, 
Abel in a mocking sacrifice to God. In other words, God says, I don't want your fruit basket. I want blood. And Cain says, you want blood? I'll give you blood. And he kills his brother. Instead of repenting of his sin, instead of repenting to God and offering what God wanted himself, blood, the blood of an animal representing him, his own life, just like this. And how do we know that's what God required and expected? How did, you know, you may say, well, how do you know Cain knew that's what God wanted? Cain knew. Oh, Cain knew. If we go back to the garden, when God tells Adam and Eve, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. We see exactly God laying this out for us with no uncertain terms. What does God do when they sin and they fall? They break relationship with God. What does God do? He kills an animal and he covers them. He kills an animal and he covers them. I, we, just, this is a little rabbit trail. Interestingly enough, when you bring the ascension offering to the burnt to the altar, and this is the part, this is the offering that the whole thing gets burned up. The only part of that that does not get burned up is the skin. It's really interesting. Rabbit, we're not going to go there, but it's just an interesting thing. But so Cain knew exactly what God required for sin, what God required in a, in a sacrifice, in an offering, and he wasn't willing to give the blood of an animal. He gave the blood of his brother. Whew. It remind you of anybody? <laughs> So um, Cain poured out the blood of a righteous brother whose blood, the Bible tells us that Abel's blood continued to speak to God beyond the grave. It, it continued to cry out to God from beyond the grave. What did that blood do? What does Abel and the story of Cain and Abel point us to? It points us to another righteous brother whose blood continues to speak beyond the grave, Right? This is what this is the point here. God wants blood. Righteous blood. And so Hebrews 12:24 says that the blood of Christ speaks a better word than the blood of righteous Abel. Speaks a better word Hebrews 12:24 says. And so this brazen altar in the tabernacle was this glaring witness to the reality made clear at the fall that a holy God forgiving rebellious sinners, a holy God having mercy on those deserving death requires blood to be shed. Let me say that again. A holy God forgiving rebellious sinners, a holy God having mercy on those of us deserving death, that's all of us, requires blood to be shed. So the altar was a place of bloodshed. It was a, this altar was to be made just like the Ark of the Covenant inside the Holy of Holies. It was made, to be made of wood. Um, but unlike the stuff in the holy place, in the tabernacle, it was not overlaid with gold. It was overlaid with bronze. The gold in the Holy of Holies speaks of heaven and the heavenly places, while the bronze of this altar pictures for us the earth and even the earth itself as an altar. We can see that if we read Acts 2.19. We're not going to right now, but you can mark that down. And so the altar actually pictures the earth itself as an altar. Um, I asked on Wednesday night, the bronze, silver, and the gold, if the gold represents heaven and the bronze, you know, if that's the earth, what, what do we see here? And somebody said, it's the Olympics. It's exactly right. It's the Olympics. You have three levels. And so... It's really interesting to get into this, which we are in just a second, bronze and silver and the gold stuff. But this altar, it was to be square. And at the four corners of this altar were to be four horns, which were, which were used to bind the innocent sacrifice to the altar. We see that referenced in Psalm 118, 27. Um, and so blood was put on these four corners when priests were consecrated. We see that in Exodus 29, 12. And it was also put on the uh, four corners when uh, during the sin offering, which we see in Leviticus chapter 4, verses 25 and 30. Maybe it was also put on the horns of the altar during the Day of Atonement, but there's some debate there what altar it was put on. But regardless, blood was put on these four horns of the altar. And so in Scripture, the term four corners is also used to speak of something else. If I said the four corners 
in, in thinking about the Bible, there's something else that's referred to uh, um, as the four corners. Can anybody think of what it is? The earth. Again, this is, this is a correlation. It's correlating the earth as an altar itself. And so um, four corners is used to speak of the earth. And it's not because God or the human writers believed that the earth was square. Not, not it at all. What it's doing is it's, it's a reference, a symbolic reference to the earth as a whole, to the earth as a whole. And at least part of the purpose in using that language to talk about the earth, the sphere of the earth is to uh, correlate it to, to point it back to the altar and there, and therefore God's fiery judgment on the altar or upon the earth. In Revelation 7, 1, John has shown four angels said to be standing on the four corners of the earth, preparing to carry out God's judgment at his command. Jesus in Luke 12, 49 makes this reference. Listen to this. He says, this is quoted Jesus talking. Okay, Jesus says this. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. Peter on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.19 quotes the prophet Joel. He's quoting the Old Testament, the prophet Joel. And he's saying, and I will show wonders in the heavens and above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and and vapor of smoke. Now, if you have any kind of connection or familiarity with the tabernacle or the temple system, what is that going to scream to you with blood and fire and vapor of smoke? Altar, altar, blood, fire, smoke. Okay. So all of these are echoes. They are allusions to altars and they show us that the earth is a symbolic altar that God is going to bring his fire upon. If that scares you, Good, run to Jesus. The chapter, the chapter um, in Exodus 27 also mentions accessories that were to be made of bronze, including pots to re- uh, receive ashes, shovels for ashes, basins, which would be for blood, forks to prod the fire and to turn the meat, make sure it was all burned up. And finally, fire pans to transport God's fire from the bronze altar inside the holy place to the altar of incense. They had to get fire for the altar of incense only from this bronze altar. Couldn't use other fire. Couldn't go use a rock and start their own fire. God said, use my fire, not your fire. Um, And so in the end, the altar, like all of the rest of the tabernacle, is pointing us to Jesus. It's pointing us to Jesus. And even more specifically, it's pointing us to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, which is our once and for all altar. The cross is our once for all. That's why I said, if, you, if it scares you to think about God sending his fiery judgment to the earth, this altar, run to Jesus. Because when you run to Jesus, you come to his altar. You come to where he has already been sacrificed and you hide there. By the way, the altar was also the place where people who were guilty or perceived to be guilty would run and cling. They would cling to the horns of the altar for salvation, for mercy. Interesting, right? It points us to Jesus. So when the worshiper drew near to God in the tabernacle and he offered the sin offering, the priest would take the blood and he would put it on the four horns of the altar. And this is precisely what we see happening at our new covenant cross altar. This is exactly what we see happening at the cross. The four ends of the cross that sacrifice was, the blood was shed and the, and the head, hands and feet of Jesus. The, the four horns of that altar were covered in blood. And after the priest would put the blood on the four horns, the rest he would pour at the base of the altar. What happened next? They go and they say, let's make sure he's dead. Instead of doing the thing that they always do, breaking his bones, which would have made the prophecies incorrect, they did not break his bones. What did they do? The, the 
uh, the centurion took a spear and he stuck him in the side and, and John makes, he belabors the point almost awkwardly to say, I was there, I saw it with my own eyes. Blood and water comes out. Blood at the base of the altar again. And so the fire on the altar was to never go out. We see this in Leviticus six thirteen. Why was it never to go out? Because it was God who started this fire himself. We see that in Leviticus 9.24. This is God's fire. Let me read that to you. He says, And there came a fire out from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat, which when all the people saw, they shouted and fell on their faces. Yeah, you should be afraid. So God starts this fire himself. And in fact, in the very next verses in Leviticus, uh, that's the end of chapter 9. In the very next verses in Leviticus chapter 10, we see uh, we're told that the fire was from God. It was God's fire. And we're told how Nadab and Abihu, two of Aaron's sons who were priests, it says they were cut down and consumed before the Lord. Why? Because they offered unauthorized, or maybe your Bible says strange fire before the Lord. In other words, they didn't get the fire from God's fire. They got their fire. And God says, I don't want your fire. Your fire is puny, unacceptable. I will not take it. I will not accept it. And so God said, you have to have my fire. And they didn't do it. And so God said, took his fire and he said, let me show you how much more powerful my fire is. And he cut them down. Does that scare you? It should. Really? I mean, this is the truth. It should scare us. And we should run to Jesus. We should cling to Jesus, our sacrifice. So we're told that the fire consumed them and, and they were carried out of the camp. And this is the picture of the same fire that was placed at the entrance of the garden of Eden that would cut down and consume the trespasser. If you remember the story of the garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sin and they're kicked out of the garden, God puts this fire in the way. He says, you want to come back in through the gate? You got to get to, you got to come to the fire. You got to go through the fire. You're going to be cut down. And so um, this is a picture again of the same fire. You want to come to God? Go through the fire. You've got to go through the fire. Um, and so if we, it, as we continue to the next section, which describes the court of the tabernacle, we'll, we'll get a better picture of, of what all this is pointing us to. So I want you to picture in your mind's eye this huge white linen uh, wall that designates the tabernacle space. I thought this is what I was talking about earlier. It's a big rectangle. So the tabernacle was a rectangle and then the court, this little seven and a half foot curtain, white linen fence surrounded the whole tabernacle, about 150 by 75, something like that. Maybe a little bigger, maybe a little smaller, but because we don't know what a cubit exactly was, but you can get it in your uh, picture of it in your mind. And so it designates the tabernacle space and, and, th- and these uh, white linen curtains that surrounded the whole thing were held up by these pillars which had bronze bases and silver tops. So if you remember, the bronze speaks of the earth. What I mentioned earlier, the bronze speaks of the earth, the lowest. And um, the gold that we find in the Holy of Holies, it, it's pointing us to heaven. This is where God is. This is heaven. And so um, if you go back and you look at chapter 26, you will see something pretty interesting you'll see that the bases of the walls surrounding the tabernacle, what do you think they're made of? Silver. They're not made of bronze, and they're not made of gold. The bases are made of silver. It's really interesting. Um, And so the bases of the holy place are made of silver. The the curtain between the holy place and the most holy place dividing them, uh, they're not bronze. Well, actually, I'm not sure what that curtain, the, if that curtain had a basis, basis or not. But there was the curtain on the outside of the tabernacle. So the big curtain on the outside of the tabernacle looked at just like the one that was going into the courtyard. It was blue, purple, scarlet yarn with fine linen woven in between. The one on the outside was bronze base, silver top. The one to go into the holy place, not to go into the most holy place, but to go into the holy place, the curtain looked the same. And its pillars were bronze on the bottom, actually. And guess what color on the top? 
gold on the top. It wasn't silver on the top. It was, that was gold. Because once you got into there, you were going to heaven. You, you're where God is. And so it's, it's, a, it's a really cool picture. And, and what you see is this. Uh, I lost my place. Hold on one second. The curtain spanned from earth to heaven. That's the bronze to the gold, not to bronze to silver like in the outside. And so the idea here, the symbolic idea here is that the whole tabernacle is up. The whole tabernacle is kind of floating up off the ground. It's in the air. It's earth to this heaven, we could call it the firmament, this heavenly firmament. And then beyond the firmament is heaven. Beyond the firmament is where God is. And so this, the white linen around the tabernacle was this picture of clouds. It was this idea where you couldn't just go in there. Nobody could just go, hey, let me just, you know, I don't want to walk all the way around and go through the gate. Let me just slip in the back door here. No, that didn't happen. You would be killed. I mean, you, you couldn't do that and survive. And so his idea of clouds, and then you have the bronze earth and the clouds and the silver is this firmament in heaven. And then gold is where God is. So like if, even if we think a bit about it right now, you can't get into a rocket ship and, and fly to heaven. You can't get into a rocket ship and fly to heaven. You can go to outer space, but you can't just say, well, it would just take a really long time, but we could get to heaven. No. There's only one way to get to heaven. You got to go through Jesus. There's only one way to get to heaven. It's got to be opened up for you. You can't just go get there. Um, And so this is the picture that this is the picture that's being painted for us in this altar. Along these lines, we see that the ark and the table and the brazen altar and the altar of incense all are made with these rings and poles. And the point is for them to be carried when they go and move. But it also pictures the idea that these things are all up. They're all up. Why didn't they just make them permanently down and then just, you know, pick them up and put them on a cart later? Because that's not what God wanted them to do. He wanted them to build into the altar rings, build poles, because the idea here is that they are up. Okay? They are above the ground. And so the very last thing we see in this chapter is that God commands the children of Israel to bring pure beaten oil for the light, just as it was required that the offerings the Israelites brought to God were to be pure and spotless. So it was with this oil. And so in fact, God specifically tells them how he wants them to extract the oil from the olives. And, and the way that God tells them to do it is kind of like with the mortar and a pestle thing. But the way that, but the way when you do it that way, you remove the impurities and it, and you get pure, clear oil. You don't grind the pit up or anything like that. You get pure, clear oil. And that's what God wanted. Psalm 119.105 says this. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Proverbs 6.23 says, For the commandment is a lamp and the law is light and reproofs for instruction are the way of life. So the oil pictures for us the spirit of God that illuminates our way. The oil pictures for us the spirit of God that illuminates our way. The spirit of God that helps us in our weakness when, when we don't know what to say. Who makes intercession for us. So there's no doubt that every detail in the tabernacle has divine meaning. Every detail has divine meaning. And the reality is... Um, we don't know what it all means. And so one, it would be a mistake to just blow it off and say, well, Jesus has come, so this stuff doesn't really matter. That would be a mistake, a mistake we don't want to make. Another mistake would be to try and philosophize about every detail of the altar when we simply do not know about every detail of the altar. And so we don't want to make either of those mistakes. What we want to do is we want to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the substance that all of these shadows are pointing us to. The tabernacle was pointing Moses and Aaron and the priests and the whole congregation of Israel to who? To Jesus. The tabernacle system has been put away, has been fulfilled. Why? Because of Jesus, because Jesus has come. But it continues to point us to him in the preserved scriptures that uh, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that the scriptures are still profitable for reproof correction, training 
in righteousness. And so what that means is that these scriptures containing these tabernacle details are, according to God, helpful in making us holy. It's helpful for making us holy. So we're getting ready to finish here. When we, when we get to chapter, uh, when we get to a chapter like this, Exodus 27, it sometimes can be difficult. When we, we want to reflect on the chapter. And one of the things that we can do is we can ask ourselves some basic questions. Ask the text some basic questions. And the first question that we can ask of the text, and this is true of any text you read, okay? Some are easy to see, some are not as easy to see. But every, but every text you can ask this question. Um, and this is the question that you have. If you, if you kids see on your sermon notes, papers, if you look on your sermon note papers, you'll see this is a question that we ask every week on those papers. And it is this. What are we learning about God from the passage today? What are we learning about God from this passage today? So from Exodus 27, some of the things we learn about God is that one, God really cares about details. God cared what, what kind of metal their bases were on their, pel- on their pillars. God cared uh, how long their curtains were. He cares about details. He has a plan. We learn that God is so holy that before Jesus came and died, sinful people could not just walk right up to his presence. They had to stay away. God is so holy, sinful people had to stay away. We learn that because God is merciful, he kept us away. God is merciful, and so he said, okay, stay over there. Because if you come here, you're, di- you're done, you're toast, you're dead. Stay over there. He is merciful. Something else we learn about God. We learn from these details that God showed Moses that Jesus was always God's plan to save his people from our sin. Jesus was always the plan. We'll get into a little bit more of that in in the exhortation later. But another question we should ask of the text is, is what it teaches us about our sin and the work of Jesus to save us. From Exodus 27, what do we learn about our sin and the work of Jesus? We learn that our sin is a stench to God. And so uh, in this shadow system with sinful human priests and innocent animals, animals, God wanted constant incense. God wanted constant smoke from these animals to temporarily cover the stench of sin. We learn that um, our sinfulness makes us separated from God's holiness way up above us, and so we come as far as we can to the top of the mountain to that brazen altar, and that's it. It's as far as we can go. We can't get to God. We also learn that he made a way for us to offer these animal sacrifices where we could symbolically get up there. And, and what the animal sacrifices did, they, they would cover us. What it also meant, that was good, but what it also meant is that as soon as we turn around and leave, we knew we were going to have to come right back again tomorrow. As soon as we turned around and leave, we knew it wasn't going to be good enough. It could only cover for so long. It could only cover so much. This altar and this sacrifices point us to the fact that one day, long after that brazen altar, listen, it points us to the fact that one day, long after that brazen altar was gone, God would send his own lamb to another mountain to another altar, this lamb's blood, this better lamb's blood would cover the four corners and be poured out. The blood was so innocent and pure that it would be the last sacrifice ever needed. Let me say that again. The blood of God's lamb would be so pure that it would be the last sacrifice ever needed. The lamb's blood on this earthly altar would not just cover, would not just hide our sin below the surface. This blood of this lamb would take away your sin. It's the life in this lamb's blood that would not just cover our sin, it would take away our sin forever. But it would not even just take away our sin. It wouldn't even just take it away. It wasn't like God was just erasing the chalkboard and saying, all right, have another go at it. He would take away our sin forever. 
But this blood of our brother Jesus would also bring us eternal life and joy with God our Father. The relationship broken at humanity's fall all the way back in the Garden of Eden would finally, finally be restored. And what was broken and what was separated would be finally united into one. All because of the Lamb's blood. All because of the Lamb's blood. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're invited this morning to come to this table. I'm not going to do like what we used to do or what some churches may still do and say, all right, every head bowed, every eye closed. If you want to, if we're going to have an altar call now, we're going to, and you raise your hand if you need to accept Jesus. We're not going to do that altar call like that because this is our altar call. I'm calling you Christians to come to an altar. I'm calling you. Maybe you've never trusted in Jesus. You don't have to say a specific prayer. You don't have to come down here and stand in front of everybody in this room and say, I need to trust in Jesus. Let me tell you what you need to do. You need to cry out from your heart that the lamb's blood would take away your sin. And you need to run to this altar. You need to run to this altar and take what it is offering Jesus. And that's what this is. That's what this is. If you look at the day of Pentecost back in the Bible, in the book of Acts, Pentecost, when Pentecost came and the Holy Spirit came and he and he came to those disciples in the upper room. It, it said that it appeared like fire above their heads. Fire of God above their heads. But you know what? They weren't burned up. They were not consumed. It burned, instead of burning them up and consuming them, it burned inside of them like a lamp. And they went out of that room and everybody said, whoa, these people are weird. Something is different. I think they're drunk. What's happening? And he said, we're not drunk This is the fire burning in us. They didn't die. God mercifully invites us to this altar table to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Yes, we come to this altar each week to die. Yes, we come to this altar to die, but because of the blood of Jesus, because what is offered here to you and me at this altar, we come to die and we come to receive new life, eternal life. To live again, eternally. Jesus says in Luke 9, 23 and 24, he says to them, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, daily and follow me for whoever will save his life shall lose it. But whoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. At this altar, the lamb is given to us. So Christian sinners crying out for Jesus, come and welcome to him. Come and welcome to Jesus. Christians come. I mentioned two questions we ask of the text. Ask of a text. What does it teach us about God? What does it teach us about our sin and our great Savior? But that isn't all. There's at least one other question we should ask of the text, and that is this. In light of what it teaches us about God, and in light of about what it teaches, uh, in light of what it teaches us about our sin and about our great Savior, how then shall we live? What do I do? How do we live? So church, please stand and receive your charge. As we answer that question. Jesus is the true pleasing aroma to the father. And so you are to let his life and his love be evident and manifest in you. Let it burn in you. 
The life that we now live, Paul says, we live by faith in the Son of God. So children, how do we live? How do we let the aroma of Christ dwell in us? Children, by obeying your parents quickly and cheerfully. Obeying your parents. Wives, by serving your family diligently, joyfully, letting the aroma of Christ in you permeate your home like an oil diffuser. <laughs> Let it permeate your home, the aroma of Christ. Husbands, by loving sacrificially, by generously laying down your life for your people. From what we learn about God and our sin and our Savior in Exodus 27, how then shall we live? Jesus is the pure light that comes to us. He is the pure light who by our very hands was bruised and pressed, right? He graciously redeemed us and forgave us while we were still his enemies. So how do you think we're to respond when we are bruised and when we are pressed? How do we respond to our enemies? So this goes to all Christians, no matter your age, no matter your station, no matter your situation, you are to live in such a way that is to spread the light of Christ to the darkness. Spread the light of Christ, Christian, to the darkness. The, spread the love of Christ to the lost. And like Christ, when you're pressed, when trial comes, when tribulation comes, let it produce light and joy and glory. As long as we are jars of clay, as long as we are people, as long as we're jars of clay, our brokenness, your brokenness will only serve to let the light out. So let it shine. All right? In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.